A reading from Mark chapter 14, verse 43 through chapter 15, verse 15. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with, a, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how they many charges brought, they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. 
and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I... What shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scored Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. So we are continuing our way through the Gospel of Mark, and believe it or not, after this week we've got two two sermons left, and then we'll move on to something new. Um, But tonight we come to the uh, betrayal and the trial of Jesus. And it's worth just noting, especially since we've taken a number of weeks to work our way through the Gospel of Mark, that when you come to chapter 11 in Mark's gospel, you really have come to the last week of his life. And when you look at from 11 through 16, 14 through 16 is all about his betrayal and his trial and the cross. So a third of Mark's gospel is focused on the last days of Jesus, which ought to tell us something that for the gospel writers... The cross of Jesus is absolutely central to the Christian message. And it's worth asking, as we come to the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, what do we then learn about the cross of Jesus? And what I think Mark teaches us tonight that will frame our, uh, our study of this passage is simply this, that Jesus willingly absorbs our sin so that through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What you see Jesus doing throughout this entire section is absorbing human sin. And so what I want to do is look at three things with you. I want to look at the ugliness of sin, the faithfulness of Jesus, and then the gift of grace. We'll look at the ugliness of sin, the faithfulness of Jesus, and the gift of grace. So let's first look at The ugliness of sin. Every person in this story, through the end of chapter 14 and into chapter 15, in one way or another, they reject Jesus. Let me just list for you the characters and a snippet of what they do. First, you have Judas, and he betrays Jesus. Then you have the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the governing body of Israelite religion in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, they falsely accuse Jesus. And then we come to Peter, and he outright denies Jesus. Three times he denies Jesus. And then, after Jesus has been handed over to Pilate by the chief priests, we encounter the crowd. And the crowd calls for his life. And Pilate, as we see at the very end of this section, he uses Jesus. 
So let's look at this a little bit more. In each of these instances, what we see is a rejection of Jesus and Jesus absorbing their sin. Let's take Judas. Judas, as we look back in chapter 14, verse 11, 10 and 11, this is uh, the night that Jesus uh, celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And Judas goes and makes a deal with the religious leaders. In 14, verse 11, it says that when they heard it, that is the religious leaders, the chief priests, they were glad and they promised to give him money. And as a result, Judas sought an opportunity to portray Jesus. This is pretty straightforward, however ugly it may be, that Judas betrays Jesus because he loved money. He loved his possessions. He saw an opportunity here to make a good deal of money and to betray Jesus even though he was one of the twelve. So the very first facet of sin, the inner workings of sin that we see here is that greed, love of money, is simply saying, I I love my possessions and my resources more than Jesus. But then take the religious leaders. Interestingly here, Mark, in recounting to us Pilate's opinion of the religious leaders, if you look in verse 10 of chapter 15, here Mark says, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. What is the aspect of the ugliness of sin that we see in the religious leaders? Well, it's their envy. It's their sense of superiority over Jesus. And he was a threat to their prestige, to their status, to their authority over the people. Their morality is what they loved. Their religiosity they loved more than Jesus. And I, I want to pause with you for a moment and just get you to look at this with me. Jesus and the religious leaders are at odds throughout this entire gospel. And it ought to make you take a moment to think, man, what, what does religion, what's the real problem with religion? Because Jesus has no love for it in the gospel. And we can see here in the way in which the religious leaders react to Jesus is a profound definition of religion in contrast to the gospel. And it's simply this, that religion, it refuses to accept the truth about Jesus as the Son of God. Look, down in verse 62, after the chief priest says to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds, with the clouds of heaven. And then Mark tells us that the chief priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy, and he's condemned to death. The most allergic part of religion to Christianity and the gospel is a refusal to see Jesus as the Son of God. 
the Savior of sinners. But then take a moment and look at Peter. So we've got greed for Judas, envy for the religious leaders, and cowardice for Peter. Now, Peter is sometimes, I think, an easy uh, disciple to pick on. He's got a lot of uh, spunk. He's rather uh, sprightly, and he's also kind of uh, far too self-confident for anybody's good. And here, Peter has followed Jesus. And as far as we know, he is the only disciple who has followed Jesus to this point. And he's in an outer courtyard, uh, not in the, in the thick of the trial of Jesus with, before the Sanhedrin, but he's nearby. And you kind of have to think about this for a moment. Um, Jesus has just said, I am the Son of God. And he's just been sentenced to death for blasphemy, for saying he is equal with God. And here, a servant girl notices Peter and says, aren't you one of his? Now, think about this for a moment. Your rabbi, the one you follow, has just been condemned to death for blasphemy. And then you are then identified as one of his followers. What are you going to do? Peter is a coward. And at the same time, I think it's, my general reaction is, well, I kind of can understand why. He would have probably suffered the same fate had he owned who Jesus really was. And here we have probably one of the more saddest stories where Peter, he fails to confess his Savior. And we'll we'll come back to Peter in in a few moments. But then we also have the crowd. What does the crowd teach us about sin? You look in verse 11. The chief priests were stirring up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead of Jesus. And then in verse 13, we begin to see that the crowd is in full force crying out, that Jesus be crucified. See, the crowd shows the sin in our own hearts of the love of human opinion and agenda rather than the word of Jesus. And finally, take Pilate. Pilate shows us the ugliness of sin and his ambition. Look in verse 15. As this part of the story comes to, a fo- comes to an end, and Pilate has even said, I don't know why you're calling for his death. I don't see what the charges are. It doesn't really matter because what Pilate most is interested in is his power, his ambition. In verse 15, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and had Jesus handed over to be crucified. So what I'm trying to show you here is a, a fabric or a tapestry of the ugliness of sin that Jesus absorbs in this story. It's greed, it's envy, it's cowardice, it's love of human opinion and approval, it's ambition. And the common thread that you see throughout all of these portraits is really found in one word that appears at key points throughout chapter 14 and 15. And it's the Greek word paradidomi, which means to hand over or to betray. That same idea is used for Judas, 
who hands over Jesus to the religious leaders. It's used for the religious leaders who hand Jesus over to Pilate. And it's used of Pilate who hands Jesus over to be crucified. And when we step back and look at that, here now we have a very accurate definition of what sin really is. The essence of sin is handing Jesus over for something that we love and treasure more than him. Sin is simply the ways in which our hearts betray Jesus, sacrifice Jesus, hand him over for something else that you have fixed your heart's desires on. One writer puts it like this, sin is not only the breaking of God's law, but also the breaking of covenant with one Savior. Sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's divine parent and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a holy bond. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. See, we really haven't understood the Bible's understanding of sin until you begin to see it is personal towards God. It's not just an abstract law that we have broken, but it's a personal attack and affront on God himself and Jesus himself. However, it will never do to simply dwell on the ugliness of the sin that we see here that Jesus willingly absorbs we also need to look deeply into the faithfulness of Jesus as the one who has come to absorb our sin. In other words, we need to look at what Jesus came to do for us that we could not and would not do for ourselves. So let's look secondly here at the faithfulness of Jesus. I want to show you in big picture what Jesus does and then uh, the ways that he is faithful and two ways that, that it works out. Look in verse 49. This is at the end of when Judas comes to betray Jesus. And he says there in verse 49, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. And then he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. You see, for Jesus, here what we see him doing is regardless of what it looks like on the outside, Jesus understands that everything that's happening is in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled, in order that God's great plan of redemption would be accomplished. He even teaches his disciples at the end of Luke 24 what the whole whole Bible is about. He says the scriptures, what's written in the scriptures is that the Christ should suffer, rise on the third day, And that repentance and forgiveness would be proclaimed to the nations. See, for Jesus, none of this is an accident. And in fact, the Apostle Peter, uh, after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, and he's in Jerusalem, and it's the day of Pentecost, the day that Jesus pours out his spirit on his church, and Peter begins to preach and tell them what's happening. This is what he tells us. He says, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And it was according to that definite plan and foreknowledge of God that he was crucified 
by the hands of wicked men. None of this is an accident. This is precisely how God has planned it to unfold. And Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. He has yielded himself to his Father's will. And what does that look like here in this story? We see Jesus do this for us in two ways. First, he makes a true confession, knowing full well what will come. And then second, he does not defend himself against false claims, but he entrusts himself to his heavenly Father. So let's look at first, he makes a true confession. Look in verses 53, pretty much down through 64. This entire section is really where the chief priests, they are trying to seek testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they can't find any. Religious, one religious leader after another is coming forward with a claim, bearing false witness about Jesus. Again and again, and they can't find any. And it's not actually until the chief priest comes and asks Jesus straight out, are you the Messiah? That they get the testimony that they've been falsely trying to conjure up. And it comes from Jesus' own mouth. Jesus gives them the testimony that they simply cannot come up with. Jesus makes a true confession. And the irony here is not only that Jesus gives the religious leaders the testimony that they most want, Jesus' testimony here to his true identity, to his true relationship with his heavenly Father, stands in stark contrast to Peter's denial. You see, Jesus stands before the religious leaders and owns his identity and his calling and what he has come to do. And when Peter asked by a servant girl, he denies Jesus three times. This is actually the first time in Mark's gospel where there is an open denial of Jesus. And it comes from the lips of the chief apostle, as it were. See, here is what we find to confess the name of Jesus is beyond us to do. And what we find here is a Savior who confesses perfectly, even at the cost of his own life. So Jesus makes this true confession, but notice he also does not defend himself. Time and again, Jesus, when he's asked, he remains silent. The only time he really owns his identity is when he's directly asked. But both before the the religious leaders and before Pilate, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't seek revenge. He simply entrusts himself to his Father in heaven. And it's striking that Peter, in his first letter, he writes this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here is 
something to think about. How do you face injustice? How do you respond when you've been wronged without wanting to get back or without wanting to take revenge? The only way that you can experience wrong and injustice and not get back is if you know that everything will be made right one day. The only way you can forgive and truly absorb the cost to forgive is if you know that there is a judge who will one day right all wrongs. And Jesus here shows us what it looks like to entrust yourself to the Heavenly Father. Jesus here absorbs our sin. And in doing so, he is the means by which God will put the world to right. Which what that means is the only place where you can find the resources to take injustice and be wronged and not want to take revenge is through the gospel. That the gospel itself gives us the resources Not to be a doormat. Not to say, that is wrong. This is right. Jesus is not here saying it would be wrong to seek after lawful means to work for justice. That's not what he's saying. But we live in an unjust world. How can we live in that world and seek peace and pursue it? Even especially when we might be wronged. Jesus shows us it's only in him. But regardless of where you find yourself today, especially as we looked at this tapestry of sin and the various characters in the story, it's really only through faith in Jesus and in his faithfulness that we receive and participate in the free grace of God. When we come to the gift of grace here, that Jesus has willingly absorbed our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gift of grace. And let's look where it begins, what it's based on, and how you get in on it. Well, it begins really where this episode with Peter ends. You see, the gift of grace, it begins with a true spiritual conviction for sin. Peter discovered he did not have what he needed to remain faithful. He was exposed. His pride and his self-confidence was laid bare. He was cut to the heart. We need to, in light of the gospel, where the gift of grace, where it begins, is you begin to see how you have personally rejected God's love freely offered to you in Jesus and that you've exchanged that love for something else, something far less precious, something far less costly. But while the gift of grace begins with conviction for sin, it's not based on that. You see, the gift of grace is actually based on an exchange 
Look with me here in verse 6 and following. This is after Jesus appeared before Pilate. And it was Pilate's custom during the Passover feast to uh, release a prisoner, a Jewish prisoner, back to the people. And what we have here is that there is this man who's called Barabbas. He was a murderer from what Mark calls the insurrection. And we don't really know exactly what event he has in view. But an insurrection would have been a political revolt. And the people are saying, we would like for you to release this murderer and this political rebel in the place of Jesus. And it's worth noting that Barabbas in Hebrew actually means son of the father. What we have here in story form is what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. That's the very heart of the Christian gospel. That Jesus takes our place. He receives what we deserve. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. We stand where he deserves to stand. And in this exchange, in this story, Jesus stands where a murderer and an insurrectionist stands. And a murderer and an insurrectionist goes free. That's a picture of the gospel. The gift of grace, it's built on an exchange. John Stott writes about this very thing when he says, the biblical gospel of atonement is God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. And God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. See, the gift of grace, it's built on an exchange. And how do you get in on that exchange? You get in on that exchange through faith alone in Jesus. You see, here's what it means to have faith in Jesus. It means that the quality of your life is no longer the measure of your worth. When you put your faith in Jesus and this exchange, that you realize he needs to stand where you stand before God. And that you now by faith get to stand where Jesus stands. What, you begin, what that means is that the quality of your life is no longer the measure of your worth. Now, the measure of your worth is the quality and beauty of Jesus' life. And this means the gift of grace, it carries with it a whole new identity. Identity is a major topic of conversation in our culture today. But I just want you to see, here is where true 
biblical gospel identity comes from. It's the only place you will ever truly know yourself is in light of this gift of grace. See, in in the gospel, all the condemnation, guilt, and shame that was yours has been placed on Jesus. And all the faithfulness and obedience and righteousness that belong to Jesus has now been placed on you. So that now when God looks at you, he looks at you as he looks at Jesus Christ, as righteous, as beautiful, as one of his beloved children. What does that mean for you? Let let me try to dig in here a little bit. How should this change your life every day? What this means, here is the end. The end of the toilsome, endless need to build your your identity on anything other than Jesus. I think if we're honest, all of us toil endlessly every day because we feel this need to justify our existence. To prove that we're somebody. And here is the end to that need. Listen to how one writer reflects on this. He says, I have known numerous persons who have been looking for themselves for a lifetime without success. In reflecting on my own life, I observe that those times when I have seemed most in touch with myself, when my self-identity has been most secure, have been those times when I was known by another, not by myself, and when I was accepted by that other. I then recalled someone saying, those who give their lives in search of happiness will find many things, but never happiness. Could it be that the issue of self-discovery, of our own self-identity, is similar? I believe it is. My assumption now is that one's search for self ultimately is fruitless because it seeks to find that which can only be given by another. In short, we may seek self-identity and hope to find ourselves, but the hope-for result never occurs through our own efforts. We seek ourselves but are finally found. And listen to this. One's identity is the gift of another's love. That's the gospel. That's the gift of grace. That is this great exchange. Our truest and deepest identity is the gift of another's love. It's Jesus willingly absorbing our sin so that through faith in him, you might become the righteousness of God. That you would become a beloved son or daughter of God. It's the gift of another's love. It's the consistent theme of the whole Bible that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. If you really want to find yourself, who you truly are, you must receive this gift of Jesus' love at infinite cost to himself. 
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that as we reflect on stories like this and as we see Jesus resolutely, willingly, obediently, faithfully walking to the cross, we pray that you would help us to see in him the gift of your love. The gift of your love that alone can make us right. That alone can give us peace. That alone can deal with our guilt, our shame, our anxiety, our fear, our depression. Father, we pray that as we continue to sing tonight, as we continue to reflect on the gospel around the Lord's table, we pray that you would help us to receive by faith this gift of grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.